0: We started in a new series last week that I, I, you know, I could talk about this topic. If you guys would spend some time studying the topic of love in the scriptures, you will be blown away, especially in the New Testament, this new covenant that Jesus talks about with this singular command uh, to love as he has loved us. And so we are looking at this concept that love is not a feeling. The the kind of love the Bible talks about, we talked about what it was last week. Love is not something you fall into or out of. Love is a verb. Love is an action. Love is something you do. This week I want to talk to you about who do you love. I had that George Thorogood song going through my mind all week. Who do you love? Anyway. Uh, to, to do that, I want to take you back to the temple in Israel And to set the scene for that I want to share uh, an exp- experience that most of us have It has to do with waiting in lines Who likes waiting in lines? Anybody ever see a line and go, that is an awesome line I can't wait to get in it <laughs> We were in Australia a few weeks ago And they call lines queues Which sounds more dignified Just wait in the queue, sir oh, the Queue. Now I'm a type A guy And for me, waiting in lines can actually feel almost physically painful, you know, where you're like, oh, you know, and I don't know why I'm in such a rush, but I can't, ma- and here's the deal, it does not matter if it's the grocery store or a traffic lane on Route 80. I have literally a 100% track record. Every single time I move out of one line, because I perceive another line to be shorter, invariably, that line comes to a halting stop. Every single time. Now, I hate lines, here's something that many of you do know about me, I love the beach. Like I'm a big beach guy, I have no idea why some of you camp, it's lost on me why you find that an enjoyable experience at all. I would pay to not camp and just to stay home, right? I'm probably getting myself, I'm probably getting in between spouses right now, but anyway, uh, I'm a beach guy and my beach is Ocean City, Maryland. If you've been to Ocean City, Maryland, raise your hand. All right. Uh, I know if you've got to like Ocean City is like Las Vegas at the beach I know the slang word they use for Ocean City Which rhymes with city I'm, We're not going to talk about any of that I understand it's not like you know The best place in the world, but I love it And so this year It was Memorial Day weekend I couldn't get down there, but I saw this picture If you've been to Ocean City, raise your hand if you've been to Secrets See, now you're sheepishly Raising your hands Because I've been to Secrets too It is the Sodom and Gomorrah of Ocean City, Maryland, right? But it is a ton of fun if you get there early in the day because here's what happens at Secrets. They call it Jamaica, USA, and it's this club that looks like Jamaica. You'd swear you're in Jamaica when you go on there. There are, I mean, it goes on forever. There are stages and live bands, and then you go during the day and you float in the bay um, on tables and chairs that float, and then waitresses swim out to you. Um, I mean, this is, you know... I mean, it's not heaven, but it's getting borderline, right? <laughs> it's right there. And so uh, I want to show you a picture of, of, of two things that I don't know what to do with. Here is um, Secrets on Memorial Day Saturday. Secrets is over here on the left, right? And you'll see the line is a singular line, and it goes and then it wraps around. And that is the cue out there in the parking lot to make your way around to get into Secrets on Memorial Day weekend in Ocean City, Maryland. See, I don't know what to do with that because I love the beach and I hate lines, right? And it's kind of like it sends my mind into this little loop of what do you do? Now, here's the deal. They were in line to do something fun. I can handle a line if it has something at the end that's fun. Disney stays in business on this singular truth. Just wait in this four-hour line. That and they hide the line, you know, so you never quite see how far it is. You stand in this line and at the end something will be fun, but if there's anything I can't stand that's more frustrating, it's waiting in line to do a chore or for an obligation, i.e. think license renewal at the DMV, right? Everybody loves that line. Everybody's sitting around going, it's got to be a better idea than this. In Jesus first century world when he comes to establish what he describes as a new covenant, a new a new promise between God and man, there was an obligation that everybody was an obligation line that everybody was dreadfully familiar with. It was the temple line. At the temple in the center of Jerusalem, Jesus's Jewish brothers and sisters, they would come in on a pilgrimage about two or three times a year. For what was called um, a a, uh, a pilgrimage festival, Jews that were living under the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, which was the promise God had made to Moses, the the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant rules your Old Testament. If you hold up a Bible, right, like two-thirds of it is Old Testament, that was under the Old Covenant, and then you've got the New Testament, which was under the New Covenant. Well, under the Old Covenant, there were a lot of laws you had to keep. And if you kept the laws, then, then it was a conditional covenant. If you kept the laws, God promised that things would go well for the, for the nation Israel. If you broke uh, the laws, God promised that things would not go well for the nation Israel. That was the old covenant. And what under, underlaid all of that was a sacrificial system. These covenants uh, had with them or the, the, these promises, if you broke, excuse me, these laws, if you broke them in order to atone for the breaking of them, several times a year you were called to Jerusalem, to the temple, to make sacrifices. These offerings, these sacrificial gifts were at the center of the old covenant. That is the covenant that rules all of what you have in your Bible at home in the Old Testament. At the heart of it was be good, get good, be bad, get bad. If you're bad, make a sacrifice to atone for your sins. Now, every good Jewish boy and girl knew that he was guilty of breaking the law at one point or another, and so everyone would come to the temple to have a sacred man in a sacred place offer a sacrifice at the altar to atone for their sins. Now, you might know that, but enter the story, guys. Two or three times a year, not hundreds... But hundreds of thousands of Jews would make their way to the temple to offer these sacrificial gifts. And at the temple, there are no elevators or people movers or sacrificial code scanners to move the line along. You waited in the line to get right with God. The sun was hot. The people were probably, I'm guessing, just like people in most lines, not real happy, not very pleasant. I mean, can you imagine the smell, right, between sweaty people and a lot of animals? But this was the old covenant, and it had with it all of its rules, laws, and sacrifices. So since you couldn't keep all of them, to keep God happy with you, the only way to kind of keep God happy was to wait your turn in the line. Now, into an old covenant world comes Jesus Matthew was one of his first followers, called a disciple. But Matthew, while he was a Jew himself, a Jewish person himself, that probably at one level or a time in his life followed these things, Matthew was a traitor to his people. He was a tax collector. He had taken up with the Roman Empire, and he was oppressing his own people. He was exploiting them for his own personal gain to take taxes from them. Yet, one of the four books that we, that we have in the, in the New Testament about Jesus is written by this same Matthew. He writes an account of his time following Jesus. And he tells of a time when Jesus had a large crowd gathered around him, and Jesus began teaching. And he begins teaching about these Old Testament, these Old Covenant laws. And he starts saying some pretty crazy stuff, which is probably why Matthew, who himself was a Jew, wrote it down, because he couldn't believe what Jesus was saying. Some of you know this teaching as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is taking various parts of the Jewish law that the Jews were all familiar with, and he's reteaching them, not at behavioral observance levels, but at heart levels. He would start his teachings that day, every time he'd say something like this, you have heard it said, that was the law. Then he would say, but I tell you that. One point, for example, he's addressing the prohibition against murder. Right, if I went to the green, why are you going to heaven? I'm a good person, I haven't killed anybody one point, Jesus said, you know, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I'm telling you that anybody who's even angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And then, now into a world of law-obeying, temple-centric, sacrificial, line-waiting, judgment-fearing people, Jesus then says this, Therefore, because what I just said to you is true, Here's the deal, if you're offering your gift at the altar and and there you remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Everybody say these next two words with me. First, go. Say it one more time. First, go. And be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift to God. See for a p- people that are really familiar with all of these old covenant laws this is very unsettled because the mindset at that time and I think it's a mindset that we still have today was that if I sinned against you and I ask God to forgive me everything is good between me and God even if things aren't be- good between me and you I can have a clear conscience while I continue to avoid you while I continue to avoid you at my children's baseball games and not sit next to you at Thanksgiving dinner because I have made myself right with God. Now enter the story here, because Jesus and his crew, they had been likely on a three-day journey from Galilee into Jerusalem where the temple was. Not only is Jesus messing with the law, you know what he was messing with? The line. You want me to give up my place in line? Jesus, did you see the line? Do you know what time I got here for this? It's a football game later on today. I got up very early to get this place in line. It's how we feel about sitting on the edges here at Mendham. Do you know what time I got here so I could have this edge seat and you want me to move in? <laughs> Do you know long I've been waiting here just for this to get to this spot, to get to the front of the line? I was just about to get made ceremonially right. And now you want me to, I've been waiting this line all day. Uh, Jesus, I hear you. I'll go, I'll, I'll go, and I'll apologize. I'll patch things up. I mean, maybe if he says I'm sorry, he's sorry first, I'll do it. But let me just first make things right with God, and then I'll go make things right with somebody else. Because making things right with God is more important than making things right with other people, right? To which Jesus, I think, would say, wrong. Welcome to the new covenant. Matthew, later on in his writings, He builds on this principle of Jesus. Uh, There's a a Pharisee. A Pharisee was a a religious person, a religious person of of, of a religious elite. He was the the keeper of the law, uh, benefiting from the sacred man, sacred system, sacred place thing. And he came because Jesus is saying all these things that are making that place not that sacred and these men not that sacred. He comes to try to trick Jesus up. And he says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, all the prophets, that's what they called all of their laws. The law and the prophets, that's what the Old Testament is. It's books containing laws and it's books of prophets. All of that stuff that's at the beginning of your Bible hangs on these two commands. Now it's interesting, the young lawyer, he asks for one commandment and Jesus gives him two. And here's the interesting part about it the majority of commentators are convinced that there was not one greatest commandment, there was two. That's why Jesus gave him two. The second was not second in importance, it was merely second in sequence. The reason most commentators interpret Jesus' statement that way is the phrase is like it. The command that comes second in the sequence is like it it, to the first in magnitude and significance it was just as great the lawyer's question was front loaded with an assumption a false one that there was one that was greatest let me ask you a question uh who's got kids raise your hand and tell me which one's the greatest now i mean i have my own ideas about my own but i'm not going to share them with you But there's this false assumption that one is greater, so tell me the one. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 there are two. And according to Jesus, these two commands sum up all of the Jewish scripture, not just the law, but the entire old covenant, the way people related to God. If you had asked a first century Jew when Jesus was living what it looked like to love God, they understood they would tell you, obey his commands. That's the covenant. If we do what he says, he's nice to us, and if we don't, we're going to get it. Jesus suggests a new answer. If you want to know what it looks like to love to love God, love your neighbor. His point's unmistakable. Love for God was best demonstrated by loving one's neighbor. Love God, leave your gift at the altar. Coming to church is not going to make it right. How do you love God? You love your neighbor. And then then he, he messes with them further. I mean, you know this story, right? Maybe you're asking it yourself. I mean, if everything is riding on, I mean, love for my neighbor, then who's my neighbor? Now, you're aware of the story that we're going to talk about, the Good Samaritan. We'll talk about that in a minute. But in Jesus' day, there was an answer the law-abiding Jews of the day understood who their neighbor was. It was in the Old Testament in a book called Leviticus known as the Book of Laws. It described who your neighbor was and who you were supposed to love. This is what it said. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Who's your neighbor? Your people. That's who my neighbor is. I love people who are like me. Right? Think like me, look like me, vote like me. That's who I love. And this is so deep in the Jewish culture and in the law. Remember, these old covenant laws, they had prohibitions and instructions regarding the treatment of foreigners. There were civil laws contained in these covenants. Which, remember, one of the main reasons for the covenant, because God is creating a nation, a called out people, and he's protecting a nation. Jesus comes now and he re- redefines the terms. This is so deeply embedded. You can see it. Um, in, when, remember Peter? Jesus, oh, I love you, Jesus, I love you. I'll never forsake you, Jesus. I got your back. And Jesus goes, you know, you're, you're going to forsake me three times before the rooster crows tomorrow morning. That, Peter, he... He got so brave after he met the resurrected Jesus, he becomes like this on-fire apostle. And at one point, he's having this dream, and and it's kind of a crazy dream. You can check it out. It's in Acts chapter 10, I think. And when the dream is over, Peter goes downstairs, and there's people there. And and, and God God tells Peter, I want you to follow these people to the house of this man named Cornelius. And so Peter, a good law-abiding Jew, still trying to figure out the new covenant himself versus the old covenant. Peter goes, okay, I'll go. And they take him to the house of a man named Cornelius. And guess what Cornelius is? He's a Gentile. He is not a fellow Jew. He is not a neighbor. Here's the awkward interchange when Peter goes in. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of Gentile pigs which is what they were called often. He said to them, you're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Conversely, what he was thinking the day before was if I went in that room, you people are all dirty and unclean. I can't even be by you. But God has now taught me to rethink. Lord, I used to think that these people were people you loved and these were people that you didn't but God has now changed my thinking for Peter it happened in a dream and it probably hearkened him back to a pretty famous story one that many of you have heard of and it was again another sacred man that was in charge of a sacred place in charge of a sacred system that came and tried to trick Jesus up again because Jesus is always talking about a new covenant replacing the old covenant on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus teacher he asked what must I do to inherit eternal life? Last question is, what's the greatest law? This one is, well, what do I have to do to go to heaven? Now, this is so fascinating. What do I have to do to go to heaven? Here's what Jesus says to him. Well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus usually answers questions with questions. He answered, love the Lord your God. He gives him Jesus' answer. He knows Jesus' answer, and so he gives it to him. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all your mind, And, and now he rightly equates them together, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But, uh, but's in the Bible, right? But, he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, all right, well, who's my neighbor? Thinking he knew. I love his motivation. In the face of the command to love God and love others, he wants to justify himself because there is always something that keeps us from loving people radically, loving them sacrificially, loving them with a cost, loving them with charity, loving them with an agape type of love, which is the word Jesus is using for loving. Action, verb, doing, self-sacrificing, non-returning, benefit, love. Why do we always try to, you want me to love my neighbor? I have a new neighbor. He likes, Joan already knows what I'm going to say. For some reason, he perceives that the correct time to whack weeds with his gas mower is 7 a.m. Saturday under my window. That's the proper etiquette. I can't possibly be called to love him. It's Saturday at 7 a.m. Do you know what he did to me? Do you know what she said to me? Do you know what I've been treated, what I've been through? Do you know what those people do? Do you know who those people, do you know who they voted for? I mean, if you people, how are we at loving our neighbor? Did anybody spend five minutes on social media this political week? We, I mean, we're just so good at this. Aren't we just hearing each other's opinion and loving one another through it? I mean, it's like textbook out there. but you don't understand. To a people, because I want to justify, come on, God, you can't be serious. To a people with hearts bent on trying to justify why we don't love, not emotional love, not warm feeling love, but action type of love. Jesus said, let me tell you a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers and they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and they left him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road. You know, a priest, sacred man, sacred system, doing sacred stuff. And when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So to a Levite, another sacred man, sacred system, sacred place, when he came to that place, he saw him and he passed on the other side. Because there were laws about touching people that were in that kind of condition, Now, if Jesus' greatest commandment is true, if you inherit eternal life based on how you love your neighbor, how, what kind of shape are the religious guys in? Because they don't love their Jewish neighbor, and therefore they did not love the Lord their God. I mean, they were on I, they had to get to the temple. there were sacrifices to be given. Here comes another "but. But) A Samaritan. Now remember, Samaritans and Jews are enemies. The Jews equated them to dogs. They didn't speak to them, let alone touch them. The Jews would have assumed it was the Samaritan that mugged the man. The Jews, or excuse me, uh, but as a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his donkey. Do you see there's a cost to love? And he brought him to an inn and he took care of him there. And then the next day, he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. Love does. Love costs. Look after him, he said. And when I return, he's going to come back. I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. And so then Jesus asks him a question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Put another way, which of these three loved the Lord their God with all their hearts, with all their soul, with all their minds, with all their strengths? Which of these three men, two of which were religious leaders, which of these three men has laid claim to eternal life? The sacrificers, the law keepers, or the lovers? And the expert in the law replied, because he can't bring himself to say, Samaritan, the one who had mercy on him. To which everybody that heard the story said, you gotta be kidding me. Samaritans don't lay claim to heaven. Samaritans don't love God. Do you know who they are? Do you know what they do? Do you know the kind of food they eat? So we enter the story. Because Jesus keeps asking the same question Who do you love? Who's your neighbor? Then Jesus said to him, You go now, and you do likewise. See, last week we saw what this agape, this self-sacrificing, charitable kind of God love looks like. And we looked at the first thing that love did, which is love values and brings value and dignity to that which it loves. Ragsy, the matted down dog I had up here, Courtney, loved it and therefore I love it. Something about love, the kind of love that God has for us. God's love for us, displayed on the cross for us, brings value to us. We are valued because he first loved us. Love does this week because love goes. Love goes and makes it right. We can't be right with God according to Jesus when we are not right with each other. Loving God, keeping his commands means that we go and love our neighbors. It doesn't mean we feel warmly about them, wish well for them. I have teenage daughters, too. If I hear them tell somebody they've met 30, 30 seconds ago they love them one more time, I'm going to puke. Love you. And I'm always going, no, you don't. Then you better come up with another word for what you feel about me. Right? There's a lot of tuition racked up in my kind of love. We can't be right with God when we're not right with each other. Leave your gift at the altar, drop the religion, go. This is not a story about forgiving. I think we read it and think, okay, God wants me to forgive. He does. That's coming up in a further sermon down the road. But this is a story about you knowing somebody has something against you, right or wrong. If you know, here's my little rhyme, I made it up first service. If you know, you must go. Because you know somebody has some stuff against you. Right or wrong, Jesus' command is not to forgive. His command is if you know that you might have hurt or offended or mistreated, if you know someone whose heart you might have broken, love goes. With that in mind, who's your neighbor? Is there someone that you have hurt, offended? Is there someone that's harboring anger or frustration with you? Now, if you're like me when I was writing this, because I'm a human being, and I know there's some folks that aren't wild fans of mine, we tend to do what the young lawyer did in an attempt to justify himself. Well, God, I would do that, but do you know what he did to me? I mean, I know his feelings are hurt, but geez, I'm in the right I mean, sometimes we read these stories. I think we think of our neighbors as, as people over there that are so different from us. And there's no doubt that that's part of what this story is. But sometimes the neighbor that we need reconciling with is right in our own home. Your husband, your wife, your kids, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, you've written them off, broken ties. And you know they hold something against you. I know it's not your fault. Listen to me. You don't have to tell me. We're going to assume going forward, it's not your fault. Okay? Love goes. You drop the sacrifice and you go. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians when he's trying to describe agape? And we're going to be launching off of this next week. Paul says, listen, if you want to understand what this is like, here's the deal. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but I don't have love, I'm a resounding gong. If I have the gift of prophecy and I fathom all mysteries, I have all knowledge, but I don't love, I'm nothing. Listen to this. If I, if I give away all that I have, if I make my sacrifices, I give my body over to hardship that I can boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Now you might be going, and I know this is true, John, I've tried. I know, I know he's mad at me, she's upset with me. I, I've gone, I want to make it right, but they're not interested. And, and here, man, this, you might be right, but that doesn't mean you don't go if you know. Here's what Paul said when he was writing a letter to the church in Rome he goes, Look, love must be sincere, i.e., not fake. Love you hate what's evil, cling to what's good, be devoted to one another in agape. Live in harmony with one another. Oh, we're so good at that. Right? I mean, America, we just live in harmony with one another like crazy lately. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position, like Samaritans, like Gentiles. Fill in your own label. Don't be conceited. How about this? How's this one for a new covenant principle? Who's ever heard of an eye for an eye? Raise your hand, eye for an eye. Old covenant principle. Not applicable in the new covenant. That works great when you're trying to build a nation. The new covenant principle is this. You do not repay anyone evil for evil. You be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. And I love this. Here it is. Here's the the real teaching here. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, you live at peace with everyone. Jesus says, as long as, I mean, you can't make them accept it. You can't fix it, but you do everything you can. If you know, you go. As long as it's up to you, you live in peace with everyone. Go and do likewise. I had to conclude with this crazy story from this guy named Bob Goff. He wrote a book called Love Does a few years ago, which I didn't know existed when I started this series. And somebody said, if you're doing a series called Love Does, somebody wrote a book by that title. So I stole this title, but I didn't know it. And so I got the book. And it's a book you really can't preach through because it's all stories. So, uh, the, and these stories, this is just this guy that decides he's just going to radically love. He's a uh, professor at Pepperdine. Um, it's funny, I asked my son who went to Pepperdine if he knew him. And he said, no, but his son was in my fraternity, which is kind of funny. And so... Uh, He wrote this book, and out of the proceeds from Love Does, he started um, funding all of these schools for children in areas of conflict, a lot of them in Africa and specifically in Uganda. In his book, his follow-up book called Everybody Always, Love Everybody Always, he tells this story that you can't believe, okay? I'm going to tell you a story that you can't believe, but it's true, about the power of agape love, of loving a neighbor, of going, and how it can change the world. He had been invited, or excuse me, he had been involved in Uganda because he's been building these schools for these kids, and he became aware from the chief justice of Uganda about a problem that existed in Uganda with, this is crazy, okay, but stick with me, true story, you can check it out, just Google Bob Goff witch doctors, because he became aware of a problem from from the Ugandan authorities about the problem with witch doctors and child sacrifice in Uganda. To our ears, this sounds something like happened 500 years ago. But in Uganda, almost 1,000 children a year are abducted by witch doctors. And the belief, the reason this is happening is that uh, witch doctors believe that the head or blood or private parts of, of a child, has vic- uh, the, uh, these childhood victims, have magical power. Thousands of people have been affected by witch doctors. Yet in the history of the country, Not one person has ever been convicted in the legal system of stealing these children, abusing these children. In part, it's because none of these young victims ever survive. Usually, these parts they steal from them, their heads, their private parts, are put into cornerstones of buildings. The other reality is that many, including most of the judges, are actually afraid of the witch doctors themselves, too. And everybody always, here's what he wrote. Kabi, he says, was the head of the witch doctor... Doctors in his region. He was my age, he had no hair on his head, he had no stubble on his face, and no smile. It was like all the hate in his life had congregated on his face. It was worn and stern, and his bloodshot eyes had a yellowish hue. Cobby was the most evil person I have ever met. An eight year old boy, who we'll call Charlie, was walking home from school when Cobby abducted him. Cobby took Charlie into the bush, he cut off his private parts, and he left him for dead. But Charlie didn't die. Kabi was arrested a short time later, and for the first time in Uganda's history, one of the leaders of the witch doctors, the victim of their crime, had survived. He was alive. And so Goff, in what is a truly scary and crazy story, it's all kinds of details, I can't get into it. You know, everybody's afraid of the witch doctor. stuff is happening in people's houses, all kinds of crazy things. Uh, Kabi, He winds up taking Kabi into Uganda court. And Bob Goff wins a conviction against Kabi. The first time in the history of Uganda a witch doctor had been convicted of their, his crimes. This is what he said. He goes, I'll be honest. While I was sad about Charlie's loss, his loss of his body parts, I was pleased with the outcome of the trial. Justice had been served. It had paved the way for a more courageous stance for those kinds of crimes against children. Then he says something happened that I didn't expect I started wondering about Kabi. See, every fiber of my being wanted him to rot in the jail that would be his home for the rest of his life. I was fine with that. But my heart felt dark when I thought about Kabi. My heart felt far from God, and I didn't like it. Jesus was talking to his friends one day and explained how he wanted us to live our lives. He pulled his friends in close and explained how... uh, to their surprise, he, he, he didn't say they needed to use bigger words in their prayers or go to church more or, or not chew tobacco or not dance. It wasn't behaviors he talked about. He said if we wanted to please God, we needed to love our enemies. He writes, I already told you how I have found it a lot easier to agree with Jesus in my life than to actually do what he says. Can I get an amen? Amen. See, the command to love our enemies is a good example. The truth is, I don't want to love mine. He wrote, my enemies are creepy. They're mean and uncaring. They're selfish and full of pride. Some try to hurt little kids. Jesus didn't come to make us look like we've got it all together. He came to let us know how to be like him. I'm all for that. But does loving my enemies include guys like Kabi? The minute he attacked Charlie, Cobby became my enemy. I mean, he wasn't a little evil. He was pure evil. And it's easy to talk a good game about loving your enemies until you have an enemy. I realized I wanted big things to happen in my life. If I did, I was going to need to take bigger steps, more risk than I had done before. So I decided I was going to visit Kabi in prison. He had been sent to Luzira Maximum Security Prison. It is one of the scariest places on earth. Listen to this. It was built in 1920 for 200 death row inmates. There are now over 3,000 men in that prison. There are no windows in most places. If you go to LaZara, you go to die. He said as he waited, Cobby entered the dark room. He had no shoes on. He was wearing a torn and dirty prison uniform. And when he entered, he took a knee. and He told me how, fat, how bad he felt about what he had done. Skeptical. I thought he was just sorry because he had been caught and punished. But then he began to tell me what it was like growing up the son of a witch doctor and what witchcraft had done to him over the course of his life. And then he said something that stunned me. He said, I know I'm going to die in here. What I really need is forgiveness. His words just hung in the air. Forgiveness for a witch doctor who tried to sacrifice Charlie my immediate reaction was, absolutely, absolutely not. He'd tried to kill the little boy that I had grown to love, but something inside of me had started to change. The change hadn't been nearly fast enough, but it was nevertheless happening because I didn't see a killer in front of me anymore. I felt, I felt like I was looking at the criminal hanging on the cross next to Jesus. I thought of the words Jesus spoke to that criminal. Today, you will be with me in paradise. There wasn't a quiz Jesus gave to the criminal to get in. He didn't ask the guy about his position on a host of social issues. He didn't ask him to change his behaviors or to say a prayer first. He just said, "You're in." Standing in a dark room next to death row is this is a long way from paradise. And Cobby and I talked for a while about his family and what was important to him. And I talked about my family and what was most important to me. We talked about what I was learning, but I still hadn't figured out yet about love and grace and forgiveness and Jesus. And then something happened that will forever shape my understanding about the things Jesus talked about. Kabi said he wanted to put his faith and life in the strong and kind arms of Jesus. A couple of trips later, Kabi and I stood holding hands in the courtyard of Luzira Maximum Security Prison. And I listened while Kabi told 3,000 dying men about the new life he had started with Jesus. I know what many of them were thinking. Wait, this is Kabi, the witch doctor, the evil guy. Jesus, him, unbelievable. As the band comes up, I gotta gotta share this with you. This story goes on and on. I can't share it all with you. You should go get the book. But he started meeting with other witch doctors because he started going, I gotta love my enemies. I've gotta love those who aren't like me. And so he started meeting with witch doctors. Here's what he wrote I've actually met with over 1,000 witch doctors so far in Uganda. He said, I command every witch doctor to meet with me. And they come, they're creepy dudes. He goes, and I asked them, well, what do you need? And they said, well, we don't know how to read or write. So get this, I started a witch doctor school a couple years ago. It's a completely true story. Here's the picture of their first graduating class. He goes, it's so creepy. He goes, the only books that they have in witch doctor school are the Bible and love does. Love does and love goes. Who is your neighbor? If you know, you must go.